The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power. For all you wonks and you pros who manage energy spend for organizations, I got a book for you. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. It is written by 19 C-Power experts, and it's all about energy management strategies that organizations executed during 2020. If you want to read this and figure out how to optimize energy use and spend in 2021, go to thecpowerway.com slash 2021 to download this new C-Power book. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leader in PV inverter solutions for renewables. It is also innovating constantly to decarbonize its own operations and help others decarbonize. Even as the pandemic crippled so many areas of our lives in 2020, SunGrow delivered technology on time with an eye toward investing in more cutting-edge R&D. Learn more at sungrowpower.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, the nuts and bolts of climate policy. With a $2 trillion COVID relief package under his belt, Biden looks to the next few trillion dollars in spending, much of it devoted to building clean energy, hardening the electric grid, installing electric car chargers, and updating roads and bridges. We'll game out what's needed and what's possible. Then, is this the moment for the Black Climate Agenda? And if so, what are the priorities? Finally, we do need to build back better, but we also need to break down faster. How will pressure campaigns over new fossil fuel infrastructure play out in the next four years? My co-host is Catherine Hamilton. She's there in Arlington, Virginia. Catherine, how are you? I'm great. It's pouring outside, which we actually need rain. But it may be gray outside, but it is sunny in our podcasting space because of the great co-host we have today. And we will get to our co-host. Catherine is the co-founder and chair of 38 Nurse Solutions. I always wondered about your title, Catherine, chair. How did you come up with the title chair? I don't know. I sit in a chair all day. (laughs) You didn't want to be chief visionary officer? (laughs) Yeah, actually, my managing partner, Isaac, gave me that title. So we should ask him. (laughs) Tamara, what creative titles would you give yourself if you could? Uh, I usually go by EnviroWench or um, Mistress of All Things Climate, Um, The Enforcer, depending on whether it's Wednesday or Friday, but, you know, (laughs) it just depends. That is Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin. She is the enforcer, a national climate strategist. She works with environmental groups on issues like air pollution, energy access, climate justice, and climate accountability. She is the former North America director for 350.org, and she is a friend of the podcast. She's been on before this summer. Tamara, really uh, good good to see you. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. It's so much fun to jump back into the fray. (laughs) <laughs> and you're a seasoned pro because you are already in a closet. You had a an office set up in a closet, so you were equipped to record right away. Yes, before before it became sexy and COVID appropriate, I already had a clothis. And it's nice to visit uh, where my money used to go when we traveled outside. So I feel like I'm doing a lot in this little space. <laughs> well, let's start off with the big story coming out of Washington. The Biden team is currently working on a $3 trillion spending package on infrastructure, much of it focused on climate resilience. According to The New York Times, aides are soon pitching the president on the plan, if they haven't already this week, and details remain fluid on how it will be presented publicly. The White House may soon brief members of Congress on its priorities. Meanwhile, Congress is hard at work on some of its own infrastructure priorities. I honestly never thought I'd be talking about multiple multi-trillion dollar bills one week after another, but here we are. It's the sign of a new era of policymaking, in large part created by the economic pain from COVID. So Obama's climate policy was focused on regulation. How do you drive down emissions with existing environmental laws? The Obama team often separated its economic agenda from its climate priorities, particularly early on in the administration. But as E&E news reporter Adam Aston pointed out in a story, Biden is taking a much different approach to climate policy. His favorite tool is legislation, specifically legislation focused on building things. It's fitting for Biden because he spent his career in the Senate and he really wants to find a way to reach legislative consensus and make deals. So will the bipartisan allure of infrastructure spending be enough to move something forward at the scope the Biden team wants? Or will Republicans find a way to derail it by shouting about the Green New Deal? 
Catherine, what do we know about the Biden team's plans? How, how do they square with the activity you described last week in our conversation? Yeah, so first, let's put this in perspective. In the Obama administration in 2009, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was the stimulus bill, was a total of $840 billion, with a B, dollars. Of that $840 billion, $90 billion went to clean energy. So you think about that first. And then let's look at what he just did, which was to pass a $1.9 trillion relief package to deal with a lot of issues and get people out, hopefully lifted out of poverty, which we talked about last week, in, especially children. And now they're talking about a three to $4 trillion infrastructure bill of which Climate is a huge piece. So his whole economic recovery is tied to the transition to a clean future. Like he sees climate as the center piece for re economic recovery. So in every single piece of this, there are things like electric power, transmission, EV charging, capping oil and gas wells, reclaiming abandoned coal mines, building new affordable and efficient homes, and then in making more efficient existing homes and trying to tackle very high growth industry, manufacturing. And this is just really on the energy side. There are other sectors that they're focusing on too, including broadband, agriculture, et cetera, transportation, et cetera. But he's really looking at climate as the underpinning force of this. Tamara, I saw you nodding along a little bit when I mentioned that the Obama administration tended to, to, to separate its economic priorities from its climate priorities. How different does this approach so far under the young and Biden administration feel to you? Uh, well, it feels a little bit more like um, it is responsive to the larger number of folks in the space. We have built a thing that didn't exist during Obama's time, which was a robust field of advocates who don't all agree, don't all want the same things and have varying agendas that overlap. And as a result of it, it means the offering has to be better from government. So it's still early days, but just the first few weeks of the administration has shown more attention and focus to the things we agree on as folks with different agendas in climate and energy. And and what is your optimistic take on the outcome? I mean, the scope of spending that we're talking about here is beyond what I could comprehend months ago or a couple of years ago. What is the optimistic outcome for you? Uh, well, I think we've we've dispensed with the illusion that money is everything or that we don't just print it. So I think some of it is that we have a better grip on the economics. Uh, I actually think that came from uh, the last administration's uh, display of how much money falls out of the government in the middle of a crisis. And so that created a jarring uh, new view. It used to be called the Overton window. People's sense of possibility got expanded. So the optimistic view is that uh, hopefully with less in instincts towards uh, finding consensus and making uh making hay with folks who don't want to make hay with the agenda that saves the planet, uh, I, I feel like this administration is moving forward with a firm grip on the reality of climate and an interest in enough consensus to make it happen. So, Catherine, this could be anywhere from a $2 trillion proposal to a $4 trillion proposal, and trillions of dollars will be specifically devoted to climate-resilient infrastructure or a build-out of clean energy, as you outlined. At, at what point does this clash with reality, right? Like if, if the Biden team comes out, they brief members of Congress. I mean, at what stage should we start to see this um, clashing with the reality of politics or get whittled down? Help us understand how this starts to march forward. Yeah. And I guess you have to understand your definition of reality, too. <laughs> um, so there is that. Um, so it already is. Um, one thing that the president and Congress, too, and I would just say that the House and Senate majorities and the president are aligned on wanting to move forward in this way. Congress wants him to be successful. They want to take things home to their people who voted them there. And the Republicans are not there to play. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, in this week's 
House Ways and Means Committee, every member was supposed to, to the committee, bring their priorities on tax. You know, what is your, what would you like to see in the tax code as we put together a tax package? Now, this is a tax package that's not necessarily in the stimulus bill, although it will probably end up being in that, but it's just on its own. And every committee is trying to do this. Every committee is trying to do what we would call regular order. Let's go through the process. Let's try to get members on both sides of the aisle to weigh in and provide proposals. And the Republicans simply closed their Zoom links and walked out of the meeting. They were not willing to participate. Another example, in the House Energy and Commerce Committee this week, there was a hearing on the Lyft bill, which is Lyft America bill, which is all this infrastructure, great infrastructure. It's it's not, it's healthcare, it's water, it's broadband, it's energy. The Republicans are not interested. So they're not coming to the table at all which forces a conversation into like, what can we do without them? And the only thing you can do without them is to go through the reconciliation process, which is the same thing that happened in the previous bill. I mean, we're not there yet, but it certainly looks like it's going to end up being pushed in that direction. Yeah, from the polling that I saw, over 65% of Republicans supported the COVID relief stimulus. Clearly across the spectrum, people want and need these severely underfunded programs. Meanwhile, Republicans, as they were crafting the details of this bill, were standing up talking about Democrats wanting to take away your Dr. Seuss books. So the question is, are we so firmly implanted in the culture wars or Republicans so firmly implanted in the culture wars that they will not participate in this potentially historic bill that their voters really want. Yeah, I feel like it's a huge strategic error on their part, um, and it's unforced. So I feel like, you know, you want, as a member of Congress, you want to be able to take something home to the people that voted for you and to say, look what I was able to get done. And when you vote against having $1,400 going into everybody's checking account for them to pay their bills or put into savings or do whatever they want to do with it to help themselves and their lives get better, I think they're going to have to answer for that. And I think as long as we continue to move forward and get things done, if the president can get things done and Congress can get things done, it will continue to be an error for Republicans not to join because they won't get anything out of it. I really think people are going to start realizing, hey, the president put something in my bank account that I didn't have before and it helped my life get better. My kid has childcare that I wasn't able to afford before. My schools are open safely. I mean, on some level, they have to answer for that. Yeah, I think, uh, Catherine, you're you're talking about use of a logic model, and and I and I I would <laughs> dare to just take us back to the last few months where logic wasn't really at play, and I think where the the great stuff that got us over the cliff here of organizing is a thing we need to go back to because the Republicans are not responsive to their own desires. They are supposed to be a proxy vote, and so if we forget to go back to the tools that got us to this moment where we could even have this deliberative process. Uh, we have to remember that these folks should be representing people and the polling helps uh, getting people into the faces of people who represent them, uh, getting folks to, talk, to talk, talk about how their lives have been destroyed by the lack of action on the part of the government for the last four years. Then it, people could care less about what box they check off about seeing results. So, so I do think this is a place where organizing, campaigning uh, can really work to support the executive in pushing forward its agenda with a legislature that he understands. Yeah, Tamara, I have a, I have a question for you about that, because I feel like that was a real fallacy in the Obama administration, where they did push forward a recovery act that helped a lot of people, but they weren't able to talk about it in a way that I think really built the support that they needed to build. And I just wonder if you were in a different place now where people really do believe that we need to do something about climate, that it potentially could help them economically and get, you know, with their with job growth. And I just wonder if communication and storytelling seems to be such a huge part of this. Yeah, I think we're, I think the culture wars have to be met by a narrative that makes sense, uh, that demonstrates when we've won. I think there was a little bit of humility and uh, a real grace on the part of the of the Obama administration that was totally unnecessarily and wildly inappropriate for political space. It's a kind of <laughs> subtlety yes. that makes you a great negotiator, but not in a street fight. And so we are still in a street fight. The fact that we've gotten a couple of blocks in our favor doesn't mean that the work is done. And it is important for us to uh, continue to support the messengers, lift up the narrative 
narratives that are working and be aggressive. I mean, there are lots of schools of political thought and organizing. Uh, one of one of the ones most used often by climate activists is momentum theory. And in momentum, you keep going when when you've made some wins. You don't ease off on your friends and give them a chance. You push them harder as, and they might feel like it's painful to do so, but congratulating people when lives are at stake is really not where we're going. And if the opposition would rather annihilate everybody, we would be mistaken to to address folks as though we're we're in a place where the incredible package put together by the Biden administration uh, just uh, could actually resolve things without a little bit more force coming from all the other places. Uh, one of the things I really liked about um, just the way they're talking about it in the media currently is flagging that there are things in it that are so responsive to what rural communities and red red the redder parts of different states. I mean, we're a purple country at this point, so some of that imagery is not as useful. But I do think flagging that there are things in this that help folks who are Republicans and Democrats also puts it on the doorstep of the Republicans to show up or get shut out in 2022. If there's one kernel of hope I have, it's that the politics are so different than under the Obama administration in a possibly favorable way. If the the insurgent wing of the Republican Party in the Obama years was the Tea Party, and it scared the Obama team from overspending. It prevented them from, you know, getting the package they wanted after the economic crisis. And I think now the polling shows that government spending is wildly popular and the Biden team and progressives are less afraid of putting their foot on the gas pedal when it comes to building these packages. Yeah. And I also want to give a shout out to the Obama administration got health care done. They got yes. the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> yes. which was huge and took a huge amount of pressure off of people who also have to pay high energy bills. Yeah. You, you could argue we could look retroactively and say that the one needed to come before the other. But th it also put us in a pressure cooker in terms of the timeline we have to make to take action on climate, which doesn't move at the speed of government. So I want to round out the conversation with what we think the easy wins are, what the harder wins are, and what Tamara identified as the things we've never really had but need. Maybe those are part of the harder wins category. I'm not sure. So you tell me. But let's start with some easy wins. What do you think can and should be in here that is probably going to get easy bipartisan support and will be the centerpiece of the Biden team's package? Catherine, you want to start? Yeah. So I reached out to... Um, Stefan Feilhauer from Macquarie Capital. And Macquarie is one of the biggest infrastructure companies and investors and builders in the world. And I just said, all right, you're an infrastructure guy. <laughs> what do we need in infrastructure? What, what do you as an infrastructure investor think that the federal government should be doing? And to me, that's really important because the federal government should be filling a gap that the private sector won't fill. And he said certainty in tax credits. So for them, tax credits are really important to be able to set the stage for the market. Also making sure that they're direct pay because not only do a lot of people not have access to tax equity, but there's not much out there. A lot of it's been tapped out. So that would be really important. I think that's something a lot of people can get their heads around. And this includes not just the renewable tax credits, but also like the standalone storage tax credit, because he's saying every infrastructure project has storage plus you list the renewable technology. Um, he thought, you know, unlocking things like interconnection and permitting, all of those things that are really, those are actually more like administration things, but making sure that we can unlock that really does help projects move forward. And I think we need to look holistically at not just how do we build better roads and bridges, but how do we use technology in that's in the United States. And I think this is why I think manufacturing is going to get a big boost in the stimulus. So how do you get US technology to be able to help us use our infrastructure better? A lot of these companies are doing, for example, building roads, but adding technology that will allow you to kind of future proof it to make sure you use traffic patterns wisely and not have to just keep building out more and more lanes. So all these technologies that could kind of be coupled. So I think Things like that, U.S. manufacturing, that is going to be very popular. Broadband, oh my goodness, there's so many people who don't have access to broadband, both in urban settings that we'll talk about this later that have been redlined, as well as in urban settings. So I think that would be universally appropriate. And I also think a lot of the agriculture provisions are going to be really helpful and well-received. Yeah, I think the easy things are things we've already been 
been doing, things we're used to doing. So roads, bridges, rail lines, uh, some playing around the margins on ports, uh, construction of roads, that stuff is happening. Uh, what I would love to avoid seeing are maybe any more road widening bills for the rest of my life or projects doing that. But but uh, electric vehicle charging stations will feel sexy and new to folks and, and it will happen. Improvements to the grid and hardening, especially in the... Um, in the afterglow of the Arctic blast and how many people were hit by surprise by a lack of a hardened grid. So I do think those things fall in the category of easy or to do. <laughs> and can we please get some transmission ties? We need more transmission so we can move power from where it's produced to where people need it. Uh, what about, as you said, Tamara, things we've never really had, but need? What are those? Yeah, I think I think there are conversations around what we mean when we say clean that have been that have been fought over for a really long time. Um, I think when we talk about communities that are moving from wood pellets and stoves and coal, uh, LNG sounds cleaner to them. But because we haven't done the work to present a real set of market influences um, that could create a robust market for choices. So that's happening in Chicago and the outer boroughs of of. Um, suburbs of Chicago. So I do think getting on the same page about what's going to get us to where we need to get in the time frame, 2030, 2050, there are real benchmarks there around um, climate, energy, building, housing, uh, transportation, all of that stuff is going to have to be negotiated with some fine, with some fine uh, granular discussion about what's going where and whose burden that is relative to what's already been cited. And that's going to get tense. The Biden team has pledged to commit 40% of its climate spending to frontline or vulnerable communities, i.e. communities of color mostly, who have been at the front lines of power plant pollution and industrial pollution. So tomorrow, when we think about citing this infrastructure, how do they do it right? So it feels like we are in a semantics conversation where we have to be in an enforcement, employment, deployment conversation. The Justice 40 initiative... Um, Led, led, led by the White House, uh, really articulated a goal of delivering 40% of the overall benefits of relevant federal investments. There are so many words in there. There are so many descriptors of descriptors that you could drive a Cadillac, as my grandpa would say, through the holes in just that sentence. So 40% of overall benefits, how do you distribute benefits and how do you track that? Relevant federal investments, Who's going to determine whether those are relevant? Disadvantaged communities, why not environmental justice communities? There are an entire branch of government focused on determining what that word means uh, relative to federal investments and in tons of community level organizations that have spent their entire life cycles working on defining that appropriately. And then the other piece of the J40 initiative highlights the need to track performance through the establishment of an environmental justice scorecard. But what happens if you fail? So I think that there are as many questions about the really noble concept as how it will be deployed. What does this mean for the Office of Management and Budget? Is this track to 40% of money spent? Because 40% of benefits is like trying to put the air uh, back in a tire after it's come out. It's pretty difficult to do anything other than deal with what you've got. So so I am excited to see it. Uh, I know that it came from real comparisons uh, between the different candidates as they were pushing to come into office. And that demand for 40% was 40% of investment to environmental justice communities. So if the response tracks those demands, it'll go well. And if not, it'll cause a lot of useless fighting. We'll be back with plenty more. But first, a word about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by CPower. CPower's got this book out you've heard us talking about. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. It reveals key energy management strategies that successful organizations executed during the wildest year of this young century. It's authored by 19 CPower experts. They've got a total of more than 300 years of energy experience. It's a must-have resource for any commercial and industrial organization striving to optimize their energy use in 2021. Visit the CPower way slash 2021 to download this new book. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. 
SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables and storage. Its focus on R&D and service have allowed it to grow significantly in recent years. In just 2020 alone, SunGrow deployed 5 gigawatts of inverters to North America, and it did it on time and safely. It's also investing a lot in R&D. In fact, it rolled out a new 3.6 megawatt outdoor central inverter, a flexible option for standalone solar projects or solar plus storage. Its massive R&D task force is pushing the boundaries of innovation to deliver practical solutions for cutting-edge solar projects everywhere. To learn more, visit sungrowpower.com. Let's focus now on the growing strength and urgency for the Black Climate Agenda. Now, I'm not going to lie. Like a lot of millennials, I derive a lot of pleasure from fantasizing about real estate on Zillow and Redfin. But I saw a sobering story from Redfin this week, one that once again shows how skewed the system is for people of color. Redfin has a new analysis of 38 major cities showing that homes in former redlined areas face much higher risks of flooding due to climate change. And redlining is, of course, the practice of systematically denying loans to black and brown communities. And nearly a century after the practice of redlining began, those communities are still suffering the consequences. According to this analysis, homes in areas that were rejected by lenders are much more likely to be in flood-prone areas not to mention next to power plants, factories, and other industrial sites. For example, in Sacramento, 22% of homes in these formerly redlined areas are facing flood risk versus 12% in green-lined, i.e. mostly white areas of the city. Now, I should say that Redfin itself has been criticized for redlining communities and uh, not providing the same services for uh, black and brown communities as as white communities. So we will just put that out there as well. But still, it's a pretty sobering analysis. And just another example of how the black climate agenda is driven by urgent economic and public health priorities. So these structural problems, they weren't solutions far beyond a free market price on carbon or just throwing a bunch more wind and solar at the problem. So what are the priorities of the black climate movement and how are they strengthened by the current political moment? Uh, Tamara, how would you describe the the movement itself? Yeah, I would say that it is uh, emerging, it is surfacing, it is uh, distancing itself from the overall climate agenda of the environment, which has explicitly not been in favor of Black lives, Black livelihoods, and Black life. And so I do think some of it is about recognizing that we all want a civilian conservation corps. We all want the end of uh, concentrated area feeding operations. We all want the end of fossil fuel subsidies. But the questions around how we deal with land, uh, who we're speaking about when we talk about the labor force, uh, whether we're weighing all the impacts of infrastructure on communities, including the impacts to water, air, and pre-existing conditions caused by poor uh, environmental degradation and, and, and poor actions by uh, environmental organizations aided and abetted by a government with bad facts, uh, that is where the dividing line is. So I actually think environment and climate uh, has an agenda that Black uh, communities can be supportive of if they stop thinking about themselves. So the Black climate agenda are all those things that have to be done to make sure Black people exist in the future. And I'm for that. So, so some of the things that uh, are a part of that are uh, simply requests to be able to have uh, a reckoning on what we've done to land. So what are we thinking about when we talk about uh, redistribution and what the common goal is for land use at the, at the, in the post uh, COVID post climate area era that we're going to live in? Uh, yes, we can talk about what kind of carbon trading can happen there, but are we talking about the debt that people have faced, uh, the redlining, the lack of access to resources, the depressed values of homes, which make it a vulnerable land. Those are the kinds of things that the Redfin article really raised that are super important. So I think the Black Climate Agenda isn't just about our present circumstances and what we're worried about in the future, but how we got here in the first place and what kinds of actions we're going to take for debt forgiveness and land loss protection and all those things that make it possible for us to be in the future. We brought you on the show this summer after the death of George Floyd ignited a wave of protests around the country and got the nation talking about race in some new and different ways. I wonder, do you think anything has changed in relation to the black climate movement since then? Has the momentum continued? What, 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 has, what have the last months brought 
So it feels like there's more understanding that there is a black climate agenda, that it's unique and distinct and really uh, leans heavily on environmental justice and all the work that it has done to raise up these issues. It's also not just about uh, black climate, it's, but it's about relationships across ethnicity. So a black climate agenda is also concerned about the red deal is also focused on uh, the blue new deal. We're also, because we are in all of these places, we are as much uh, interested in uh, indigenous rights to prior informed consent as we are to family farming incentives because black people live in rural spaces and urban spaces and suburban spaces. Uh, we care about farm worker protections because before it was the current group of folks moving through this land to do this work, it was us. Uh, land and water conservation, carbon sequestration, where trees get planted, farm system reform. Those are all things uh, that that help us figure out what our lives are going to be like, the kinds of plans we can make. The concept of coastal wetland restoration is going to mean a lot to so many communities who have lived on the margins quite literally of this landmass since we were brought here. So folks in the Gulf South and Louisiana and Texas uh, in all the wetland areas that are being forced to migrate, we have a lot to say about a, a good number of these things. And the movement for Black Lives Action uh, that has happened over the last year only watered in a sharp relief because it isn't just the arm of the state in the in the body of police officers and over policing, but really this pressure cooker of being put in places that are not safe for human consumption, where there's filthy air and unclean water and unsafe uh, circumstances, but also having losing your land day by day because it's being eroded away as climate change eats away your livelihood, your life and your land. So I think there's a lot to discuss in this moment is one where if we're really smart, we could get it right. It's it's what's uh, particularly interesting about the Biden administration's approach. Uh, it's promised to work on accountability, to make polluters pay, to end subsidies, to work on farm, farm worker supports and giving out large amounts of money to help debt forgiveness. Those are all encouraging signs. And it wouldn't have been possible without folks getting into the street to say, you can't take our lives. The, the, the question is, uh, are we willing to make sure you can't take our lives uh, every day, not just when it ends up on television. Yeah, and this is not just going to be resolved by some funding. I mean, this is trying to reverse decades of disinvestment and keeping people from building wealth that white people were allowed to to build. And so it, there's so many structural issues that have to change, and it's going to take a long time. Uh, one really interesting community that is moving forward on this is Evanston, Illinois. Um, one of my husband's best friends is from there, and he's really supportive of this project. It is a municipal reparations effort, and this is trying to change their housing policies and practices and try to reserve, reverse the structural discrimination that has existed forever in Evanston um, through, you know, realtors steering people to different communities to all the way to covenants that are now illegal. But what they're trying to do is very creative, which is they're trying to solve a couple of problems in one. One is that disproportionately, black residents of Evanston are arrested for minor marijuana possession. So they've made recreational marijuana completely legal. And the profits in the sales from recreational marijuana are going to be taxed. And that tax money, which they say is $10 million, is going to go toward these reparations. So they're trying to help on kind of two in two different ways. They're doing it in a way that their residents and the residents are only like it's less than 20% um, black. And there are a rising Latino population that is maybe more than that. But, you know, it's a very much of a white and now much more progressive area. It used to be kind of old time Republican. But for years, those communities did not allow people of color to be raised up at all. And this is going to start to do that. And they've had huge amount of support. The only person on the city council that did not support it was a black woman who said, you need to do more. So that's good. She'll hold her, hold her feet to the fire. But they're going to have a $400,000 housing grant program as a first step, giving loans. Um, they're going to have to do lots of programs and initiatives. And it looks like Evanston wants to be a model. Asheville, North Carolina, Amherst, Massachusetts, Iowa. Iowa City, Iowa, all of these communities are trying to figure out how to do that. So we'll kind of see how this experimentation goes. And how does that intersect with like climate reparations? If we're scaling that to a national level, how do you think about that as it intersects with the climate movement? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got here because I do think uh, the Evanston example is one of many. It feels like a time when reparations are coming to life. We have to test the market somewhere. Uh, we've had forms of reparations previously. Uh, just here in North, uh, uh, in North America, efforts by the Duwamish tribe in Seattle to craft voluntary reparations uh, based on long like decades of litigation against the state of Washington for salmon fishing groundwork, that's a, a function of us trying it out. Uh, people having to pay ground rent to the tribes whose land was unseated, that is another set of experiments. There are several ways to think about how climate reparations can help us respond to the harms of the past and specifically climate reparations focus on uh, the past emissions, which we're still dealing with and major polluters who are still hanging on by a thread and their impacts to the lives of, of vulnerable folks. So this opens up a door for every kind of program and experiment that we're going to have to try to deal with past harms and correct um, the lack of options being given to communities who have been forced to swallow uh, the decision to make money over protecting people from harm from coal, oil, and gas. So I do think it's a really great moment to start to talk about it. Uh, I think we're going to have to see more ex experiments like these, especially around uh, what people have been put into the carceral state because of uh, things that used to be crimes. And as those things stop being crimes, what does that mean for folks who have been put out of the workforce, whose previous work is now a business industry? And so uh, I think we're going to have to try a few things. And as a, a strategist and an organizer, I'm excited to do all of those things. And I, and I think there'll be unique situations in each state that has different relationships to the harm that it's caused. And we should be expecting 50 labs full of great stuff especially if we're going to get to uh, reparations that isn't just about money, because the great thinkers on this, Sonia Klinsky and Maxine Burkett, have started to think in global space around what are the, there are five different ways to to reduce uh, harm that can come in the form of reparations. And some of it is just admitting that you hurt people. So as we move from moving that you hurt people, admitting that you hurt people to moving into a space where we're responding to that harm, taking people out of the jaws of the system and moving them into a place where they can dictate the course of their lives, we are going to have to try some stuff. And it, it, do you think this is actually playing out? Are we still, are we just talking or is there doing? It, so I am seeing some folks who are thinking about this one because we haven't won on climate. So so there's a lot of good evidence uh, for folks who, who need data points that continuing the fund in the direction that we have, the groups that are already huge, has not yielded the results that we need and we're in crunch time. I have seen some groups who are focusing on areas where there are a lot of harm. People who are looking at the Gulf so South and who are looking at Westchester, Pennsylvania, who are looking at the Ohio River Valley and who are looking at Appalachia and who are looking at people who have been harmed, who have not been resourced and figuring out how do they adjust the models that they're building. Uh, I I know for a fact there's at least a handful of groups who are looking at what happens when you remove coal from the conversation, but we're left with oil and gas. There are uh, funders who are looking really squarely at what does it mean to invest in communities for the entire climate decade, especially folks who have not already received funding or are not going to end up on Jeff Bezos's list of, of lottery winger, winners in this work. So how are we spreading the money so that the solutions come from folks who've been stewarding the planet forever? That's a real conversation that's happening. And, and I think it's a view I might have that some other folks do not, but it is really encouraging. So let's go to our third segment. Um, we spent the first part of the show talking about what we can build. What about things we need to dismantle? At the start of the 2010s, we saw national environmental groups link up with local indigenous communities and farmers and other activists to fight pipelines, mostly, Keystone XL being the most prominent. After the defeat of the climate bill in 2010, enviros were looking for something to give them momentum. Pipelines and coal plants became the focus, and it helped keep the climate issue alive after it fell off the agenda in Congress. It put the Obama administration in, in an uncomfortable spot at times as well. The movement also coincided with the Do the Math campaign from Bill McKibben and 350.org, Tamara's former organization, that clearly outlined the gross disparity between how much carbon we can afford to put in the atmosphere under a 1.5 degree or even 2 degree warming scenario and how much is actually planned by fossil fuel companies. And I can remember reading Bill McKibben's piece in Rolling Stone and 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 
going to the Do the Math tour, the live shows that they did, and having a new appreciation for the urgency of the problem. It, it really wasn't about just building a bunch more renewable energy. There were much deeper structural infrastructure issues with tearing down or preventing new fossil fuel uh, development from taking place. So what can we expect to happen over the next four years. Today, the Biden team is focused on building more climate-friendly infrastructure, as we talked about, but surely the pressure campaigns are going to ramp up as local fights become national issues once again. Tamara, what's your read on how fights over fossil fuel infrastructure are going to shape up under the Biden era? Yeah, it feels a lot like what's old is new again. Uh, a lot of the folks who are currently in the advocacy space, uh, at least the ones who are closest to the microphones, uh, this might be their first or second cycle in the work. Uh, we're going to have to see more integration across the multi-generational groupings of folks who've been focused on this. And uh, with lessons learned, uh, yay, we got KXL on day one or just about which is what we demanded. But what about line three, line five? Uh, what about uh, the folks uh, fighting uh, across the border and transfer TMX to go away. And so I do think that one thing that the community is very focused on is ending individual or what we call whack-a-mole fights where we uh, stop ACP but worry about MVP. Uh, like these, fo these different fights feel like relatives to me because there's things that we have to pick up again and again when we've beaten a permit but we need to deal with something else, which really has me excited about uh, focusing on things that matter um, domestically but also have a tie to where the work is headed and the work is global. There are no more reasons to have a strictly domestic focus on what our climate policy has to look like. And it feels like in all the rooms that I'm in, people are focused on what will make sense in our domestic climate agenda that translates to real uh, emissions and lack of harm and harm reduction in the global sense. And that uh, that work is the work of the uh, Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty, of having real conversations about uh, debt forgiveness in the global space as a, a set of trades to respond to harms that different countries are going to face. And when I say uh, that I'm talking about the treaty, what I'm talking about is developing a global registry of all the stranded assets uh, that is open to everyone across where we are to move China and India and the U.S. at the same time, uh, really starting to dig in on what that harm means, because if we don't have a list of, of stranded assets, we will become stranded assets. So thinking about uh, global solutions in the literal sense and what kind of benefits we reap from doing that work here domestically, uh, no longer asking the president to pick line three or to pick line five or to pick Dakota Access Pipeline, but to say, what is your stance on all of these things? What does the tran just transition actually look like? And what are the steps we're going to take to get there? And Catherine, do you expect that as that messaging becomes more cohesive and we link together all these individual projects into one framework to put pressure on the Biden administration, do you think activists will be successful? Will the Biden team feel the pressure? How do you imagine this playing out? Yeah, I mean, first, just the understanding that we are overdrawn. We have no more cash in the fossil fuel checkbook and we need to stop digging deeper, like literally digging um, more and more pipelines. I mean, just we don't have any room to do that. It's the planet will not sustain it. So I think that is known. I think what over the years, we've been able to learn, and I spoke with Lena Moffat, who has been working on this for a decade at the Sierra Club. And, you know, part of the issue is during the Obama administration, there was a, the big enviros worked really hard to get a cap and trade passed, barely passed in the House, but it did pass the Waxman-Markey bill. But what didn't happen was the linkage and the like coming together of all the people who've been working for decades to try to protect their own lands with those larger groups. And I think as long as if we can make sure that the large environmental entities and those funders that we've been talking about um, are on the pa same page as the frontline communities, the people on the ground who are really becoming activated. And we have many, many more youth who are becoming more activated. Tamara can certainly speak to that. That if we're all on the same page with that, I think we can get a lot done. I think you have to work at both inside and outside strategies. So you have to make sure that you have the people on the ground that, that they can articulate what are the problems? Like, what do we need to solve for? What can you not do to my land right now? And what are the impacts it's having on me and my community? 
and connect the dots to a political strategy that will have that can happen inside the beltway. And I think if you can connect those dots, we would be able to get a lot done. Uh, I think the interesting thing that we haven't always done is figure out how to talk about people when we do this work. Uh, So much of that time was spent on the math and the emissions and framing the problem and removing social license, all really important things to open up the, the opportunity we have to fight this fight. But I think the rest of the work is about helping people to see how it impacts them, giving them a sense of uh, space to create new interventions. Um, I actually think doing work on the ground that focuses on uh, jobs, infrastructure, and human health with an emphasis on human health is going to be a new way of working for all of these solutions. It is really important for us to talk about line three because it is about a yet another permit. It is about psychosocial stress, but it's also about the removal of access to water and the ability to grow rice, right? So like if we talk about uh, uh, those things, growing rice, having water, living on your land in a pandemic world, people are really clear on why that's important because we don't have the same illusions about our safety that we had two years ago. Uh, Just to contextualize line three, this is an Enbridge pipeline that's being built to bring Canadian tar sands through Minnesota under the Mississippi River into the Midwest. It would bring um, tar sands crude, some of the most water uh, and carbon intensive crude in the world. This pipeline would double the existing capacity and uh, the Anishinaabe are protesting against it. And and this fight is all of a sudden getting national attention. It feels like this is really going to be a mobilizing force for the environmental community in the next year. Yeah, I'll also say that some of that is because of Tarahuska, uh, Gwich'in Collective, and the folks at Honor the Earth who've been at this for a long time. But it also brings into light that one thing that we failed to do in the last decade was reckon with um, indigenous community needs. So prior informed consent, uh, recognizing whose land we're talking about, who has the right to act and to move, who's... Um, whose future we're protecting, that is a thing that did not happen in the work previously. I think we might have taken a little longer than we should have to develop the narrative stories and optics about all the ways people are being harmed. There have been really great actions between ranchers and indigenous community previously, folks like uh, Jane Fleming Klebe and other folks who really worked on doing some of that, but that happened at the end part of the game. We really need to focus on relationships, people's um, uh, rights, and then whose land we're talking about if if this next decade of work is going to happen. And even in the um, fossil fuel non-proliferation and treaty work that I'm super excited about, I actually think the key is that cities can adopt this. And we're not just waiting for the UNFCCC or Joe Biden and uh, the special envoy to to advance this in the government. We can take this up at the level of the municipality and the community level and cities and states like Vancouver and and Los Angeles have done just that. So I do think uh, the thing we can fix is getting more people into the conversation faster. Yeah. And I think shining a light on what the fossil fuel industry is doing, the militarized police forces, the private security forces that are brutalizing these people, the the characterization of fossil fuel infrastructure as critical infrastructure, which means that you can be thrown into jail for long periods of time for just protesting. Um, all of that has to be shown a light on so that people have their basic rights as citizens of the United States. The final piece of this that I think is really important is financing. This won't just play out when it comes to permitting. It'll come back to how the money moves around and what kind of restrictions we put on that money if we put restrictions on it. I know the Biden team is looking at climate disclosure risk, but I know a lot of environmental groups are thinking about how do we get beyond just climate risk disclosure and actually uh, prevent money from going into the worst fossil fuel projects. And there's this report that was just released this week from six major environmental groups showing that the world's biggest 60 banks have provided $3.8 trillion of financing for fossil fuel companies since the Paris deal was closed in 2015. So the money is coming fast and furious, much of it coming from U.S. and Canadian banks. And that is going to be a major pressure point for the Biden administration going forward as well. So a bunch of leverage points. Yeah, super glad you mentioned this, because just so people are clear, J.P. Morgan Base. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank remains the world's worst funder for climate. Citibank comes in close after that, followed by RBC in Canada. 
Barclays in the UK and BNP Paribas in the rest of the EU, followed by Japan and China. These are not just like theoretical conversations about what it could mean to stop funding uh, things that are hurting us, but what are we doing to contribute to folks who are betting against us with our own money? So I do think uh, this that report, Banking on Climate Chaos, uh, the 12th version of it, is a really uh, big eye-opener, along with f- the idea that uh, we have a production gap. Like the supply-side argument and finance are the two strongest things we haven't really focused on yet that really need a lot of attention because we can't just build a new movement uh, with a new market. We have to stop financing the old stuff and we have to dig in on why we've been doing it in order to keep it in the ground. All right, let's wrap it up and give our free electrons. Tamara, you are our guest co-host, so you go first. What's your free electron? Oh, that's so kind. I feel I feel I already feel... Uh, so welcome. My free electron is the Uproot Project. I'm super excited about a new network of journalists of color launching uh, a new publication for themselves to focus on environmental issues, which does in fact include uh, energy. (laughs) So I'm super excited that a collaborative of folks that we all love and recognize are going to be focusing on these issues from their own vantage point. It's an intersectional lens on how the storytelling is done. And I think in addition to the stuff we already have, the Uproot Project is really going to bring together uh, a needed training mechanism so that folks can tell these stories that we need to hear in their own voices. So super excited about it. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, first, everybody should watch Raya and the Last Dragon. It's a great movie. (laughs) It has nothing to do with energy. (laughs) The other thing is, I forgot in the last podcast when we were talking about electrification to really give a shout out to Electrify This. It's a podcast done by Energy Innovation, and Sarah Baldwin is the host, and she's great. I've learned a lot about electrification through this show, and I would just recommend that everybody listen if they can. Uh, I will mention some numbers that came out of the uh, Solar Energy Industries Association and Wood McKenzie showing that there was a 43% increase of solar deployment in the U.S. in 2020 over 2019. And it was over 19 gigawatts of capacity. And it has been extraordinary to see the expansion of solar over the last decade in the face of financial calamities, expiring tax credits, bankrupt companies. Um, This is an industry that is extraordinarily resilient, even when a lot of other industries were shutting down throughout 2020. And obviously, this is due to public policy support, but also because of dropping costs and ultra sophisticated business models and ever-expanding consumer demand. So it's quite a thing to behold. And and going into the Biden era, it feels like solar and other renewables are more unstoppable than ever. I have one last thing to say. I know, April 14th, I forgot to mention this. Tomorrow you have a town hall, the first 100 days town hall with Climate Nexus on April 14th. How can people find out more about that? Yeah, just want to thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, uh, in my ample free time, I'm always working on something. So this is a hundred days town hall. It's called the People's Town Hall. It'll be virtual. Um, there's a Bitly that you can register on. I guess we can. I could ask you. I can share it with you. Uh, we're gonna have a great moderated panel. Uh, and a town hall full of questions from folks focused on climate, energy, and agricultural issues uh, in different regions in the U.S. And we're teeing this up just before Earth Day for a reason. So we hope that you will join us. That's Tamara Tolzolaflin. Tamara is a national climate strategist. She works on a variety of issues. And Catherine Hamilton is my regular co-host. Thanks a lot for being here. As usual, you can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Find us on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And uh, pass a link out there on social media. It's still really valuable. If you've got a friend, a colleague, a family member, someone who you think should listen to this show and can benefit from it, go ahead and send that to them. Thanks a lot for listening to the show. We will catch you next week.